I want to press on now to the, to the next verses, verses 12, down to the end of this chapter. Which in some ways is a little bit of a personal digression. Paul, like I, will have this in common. When we start off on the subject, suddenly something comes into mind of preaching to do. He was certainly guilty of it, as I am um, many times. I don't even finish the sentence. I do on the rarely reason this is the case, and all my head in horror. I think I really didn't think to say that, because you didn't hear the other part. But, uh, but this is one of those that, um, that Paul is speaking here. I think, well, let's read verse 11, verse, verse 10. For adulterers and servants, and slave traders and lying spokesmen, for whatever else is contrary to this sound doctrine that conforms to the glorious gospel of the blessed God which he entrusted to me. I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who has given me strength, but he considered me faithful, appointing me to his service, even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy, because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly along with the faith and love of the Christ Jesus. He is a trustworthy saying, but deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of which I am the world. But for that very reason, I was so mercy so that indeed the worst of sinners, Christ might display his unlimited faith as an example for those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. Now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, the honour and glory forever and ever. Amen. Timothy, my son, I give you this charge. Some of you got that word. I give you away Timothy, my son, I give you this charge. In keeping with the prophecies once known about you, so that by following them you may fight them the good fight. Holding on to pain and the good conscience, some of the virtues in Christian shipwreck their faith. Among them are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme. Holy Spirit, will you make your word speaking of your desire? Let something penetrate the dullness of my mind and heart, that a principle, a truth, a step forward. Might be mindful for Give me ears to hear, Lord Jesus. Amen. 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 <coughs> there is a sense in these verses in which Paul, by way of illustration, gives a bit of personal testimony. It's almost mapping out the, the way that, uh, that Timothy's got to go. He, he refers to where he's come from, he refers, refers to how he got to where he is, and he talks about where he should be going. So that there is a sense in which, in terms of progress, this is a very natural passage to look at, to see where we're going and how we get there. But he goes back to the beginning, and I'm sure that most of us are familiar with how it all began to fall, or Saul as he was then called. The, the, word, the, the Greek word is used um, in verse 
And verse 12, I thank God Jesus the Lord who has given me strength. But that's the one-off kind of strength. It's something that happened once in the past. And uh, Paul is referring to what happened, almost the, the three, threefold aspects of what happened to him on the Damascus Road. He was a, a, a Jew, a highly trained specialist rabbi who had a mandate to persecute the church, who was on his way to do that. He got on the road to Damascus, approaching the city, and the heavens opened, there was a flash of light. He heard voices, those around him didn't see anything, or did they, but they, he ended up on the floor, and he was completely blind. But he, he heard Jesus talking to him, asking him what he was doing, and why he was doing it. And Saul, in that moment of transformation and conversion, began to address Jesus as Lord. And the conversion of Saul on the road to Damascus. If you've had any Sunday school background or church background or even Sunday school, if you were in school that long ago, you may have been told of the story of this man's turnaround. He was blinded. And uh, Acts 9.15, which tells us of his conversion, tells about these three days of self-examination. It must have been the most terrible three days of that man's life. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the perfect card, which we have so carefully built, that God knocked the bottom one out and down the But he realised that however much, however careful, however diligent, However good, however righteous, however well he kept the law, that it was inadequate. He had not got the right relationship with God. And that uh, Jesus had punted uh, in, in a way that was radical and new. But what is it about Paul's experience that he's talking about here? First of all, he's, he makes some honest confession about where he's come from. <laughs> he was a Pharisee. Sincere? Don't, don't get me wrong. We have these pictures of Pharisees as like people with whiskey in the teapot. You know these hypocrites? Well, yes, they were hypocrites. They pretended to be perfectly right. And Jesus said, you're, you're like rotten bones on the inside. But for order, as a group of people, they, they, they acted as they thought they should. They weren't feeling the, the majority of them were, were exalting their own righteousness. They were parading it. They, they, they dressed in order to show how holy. It was important to them. That was the way that they they, that they'd been taught that they must be. They were very, very religious people. Highly zealous, law-abiding, upright, sincere. And then Saul, as he became poor, suddenly realised he got it all wrong. And the whole thing fell apart. And he realized that he was guilty. That he was wrong. That he'd been deceived. And, and the sheer weight of that. And the fact that the mercy of God, that even though he'd done all of it, he thought he was doing good. Putting Christians into prison. And thinking to have them executed or whatever he did. They, he was a very violent man. And I'm sure he justified his violence. But then Jesus stopped him on the road and said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? 
stones first. Every whip is a lot. And the living is doing it for the Son of God. But the sense of regret must have been awful. And so Paul always marveled at the gospel, such sin, really put into perspective for him how merciful God has been, mentions the word again here. And there's a sense, you know, if we are really going to understand that what he calls in verse 11 the glorious gospel, I've got to grasp how bad I am. Now, please don't shut off me. Oh, there you Yes, I am. Because if I'm going to progress as a Christian and make progress in the Christian life, I must know what kind of stuff I'm made of. Let a little bit of self-confidence starts to creep in. And I begin to think that I can live the Christian life somehow by being good myself. myself. Now let's see how Paul approaches this. He has a, a, you know, a bit of a sad record. He hasn't got any problem recognising how wrong he's been. Jesus' first question as we've seen was asking him why he would persecute him. But he, said, he, he puts it this way, even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy. Verse 13. Because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. In other words, he wasn't deliberately trampling upon precious things as he understood them. It, the, the unforgivable sin of attributing deliberately that which is of the Holy Spirit to death, consciously violating and repudiating against and through knowledge, that was not Paul's position. And it's almost certainly not yours, or you wouldn't be doing it. Just in case you would. And he goes on to say, the grace of our Lord, verse 14, was poured out on me abundantly. And uh, just the sheer glory of it. The, the, the wonder of it. He, uh, he's never going to allow himself to forget that he was a band. And his, of himself he is a band. And his heart is corrupt and selfish and greedy and vain and self-righteous and it's all there. And he comments, I wonder what you think about the second part of verse 15, where he says that Christ Jesus came to the world, of which I am the worst. I don't know, you're both using it today. Of course it's all. But of course I do not mean to fall. I'll probably be this. It might be fair to say that Paul was certainly the worst self-harm <laughs> Trajan had to come. That Nero was knocking about, but he hadn't really got into gear And all the others that had been vile, violent, persecuted, blaspheming them. So maybe I would say that Paul was being utterly sincere. He was appalled at what he'd done. It, 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 it shattered. The preconception he had about himself, and he realised what kind of a man he was. The worst of sinners. And it's a lovely, really, that verse, second half of verse 1516, where he 
-hmm. comments that it, it needs to work. It can't go to the show. How far it needs to work. That it be constrained to pick up the lowest. There's hope for you. Isn't that what That's what he's saying. He's saying he was the vilest. Who was the vilest could receive mercy? Well, then there's mercy for you. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's super, isn't it? But it, it was really for sinners he came, not for the others. And the, the, per, the person really who hasn't recognised how sinful he is is not going to grow. Because the precondition hasn't been met. But I need to recognise it. And I wonder if you're one of those people. Now, don't get me wrong. And you think, well, if only I had been a wife, Peter. I've been a nice person all my day. It's not fair. I never went around persecuting Christians. I've never been, been a mainline heroine addict. I've never robbed a bank. I've, you know, I've, I've never done that sort of thing. I've never pinched my neighbour's husband. I've, if I had, it would be great. Well, I mean, it would be easy because I'd have something to feel sinful about. I would say that, have you ever heard that sort of thing, <clears throat> I was brought up in a Christian home, and I never really sinned. You don't know your own heart. You don't have to rob a bank to feel the sinfulness of sin. When I break the law of God, whether it's through my pride or selfishness or deceit or whatever, the seriousness of it, I need to feel it. And small sins are not small sins to God. Thank God if you were preserved from the depths to which some men and women fall. But whether you fell to those depths, or whether you've been preserved from them, the seriousness and the sinfulness of your own heart is something that's crucial to grasp. And it, it's almost my unspoken estimate of myself, isn't it? I wonder if you've ever thought, you know, you've been a Christian for a while, and um, you want God to do something, but it's a bit hot. I mean, pop the door open. Christmas just open, unless it's a pattern there. Can you prop the door up to the front there so that it uh, doesn't get a certain I wonder if you've ever been a little bit jealous. And I and I I've been in this position, so I, I maybe can you can identify with me. Maybe when you were wanting God to fill you with his spirit. And you've you've tried and you've prayed and you've done all the things that all those ever so helpful people have said you've got to do. Nothing else. Ever had that feeling? And then this person comes along. And I mean, say five minutes, and you can see the things wrong in their life. They're like that. They don't need a magnifying glass. They've written all of their life. You know what happens? They walk into a meeting, 
and get filled with the Spirit before they even know what it is. And they think, Lord, it's not fair. I felt that. Have you? Do you know what you say? You say, Lord, I am more deserving than them because I am better than them. And I misunderstood that. See, it doesn't work on that basis at all. I don't receive anything from God because I'm good enough. For me to say it's not fair, I've completely missed and I've done it. I know it in my own heart. Well, Lord, look at me now. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm 60% there, Lord. What's next? Because I'm so good. And it, it can so easily, can't it? You recognise that in your own heart. You know, and well, I'm, that some of my rough corners, honestly, have been rubbed off. So it must be more blessing for me. It doesn't work like that. That's not grace. That's earned. Yes? And so the first thing I need to recognise is, is the condition of my heart. Remember that uh, when that woman came to the feet of Jesus and the Pharisee objected, don't you know what kind of a woman this is? And uh, who was it that received mercy? The Pharisee or the woman? The woman. Because that's great. That's the first thing, knowing just what we've made of. But secondly, Paul then goes on in verse 15 with this, here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Now, this is another launch pad, isn't it? Remember when we were looking at the Lord's Prayer and we get to the end. And I started ranting and trying to convey the sense of wonder that Paul is reading this and grasping it, and suddenly is off. Whoosh! See? It's here. It's another of those launch pads where truth actually inspires a man. And it, here is a trustworthy saying. He says that several times in T- Timothy and Titus. I'll come to them in a minute. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst, but for that very reason I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display some unlimited patience as an example for those who believe in him and receive eternal life. Now to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, the glory and honor forever and ever. Amen. What was I talking about? Because it's like his heart is moved by the grace of God. He's so stirred by what he calls a glorious gospel. That uh, the, the seriousness of it, and marvelous, there is no trace of guilt here, is there? And another crucial thing to understand with Paul, that he can talk about his previous sins, he isn't glorying in them, and he isn't whipping himself because of them either. And that's a very difficult line to draw if there's something which has troubled your conscience. Am I related to anybody? You see, he recognizes the seriousness of it and can learn from that. But he's been forgiven. He has received mercy. Now, I'll come back to that in a minute because it's crucial. But the... It's really his amazement that I just want to catch hold of. You know, the gospel is very, very special, isn't it? That when we are as bad as we are, even though we don't like to admit it, 
Even though my heart is made of the kind of stuff that it's made of, you know it, sometimes I try to pretend it's not like that, but this is the basic raw material that, you know, we're made of, and the grace of God reaches even there, even in my darkest moment, that the love of God reached for me. And that when we were right away from God, and some of our conversions were like this, we were a million miles away, and the grace of God abounded to me. <laughs> yes? Was it like that for you? And then you look back and you can see that God was planning it all along and has been dogging your steps and digging you here and kicking you there. The grace of God abounded to me. And it is just absolutely thrilled to bits about it. That the gospel is so special. And that the core of the gospel, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. There's incarnation there, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. There's identification there. That he, that he, he took upon himself. Imputation. There's a whole act of Jesus in the gospel whereby he became sin for us that we might, not, that we might become the righteousness of God. Yeah? That he loved us. He spoiled us. He came to us. And that's the gospel. That's the grace of God. Great truth. The truths like granite, you can rely on them. And he, he uses this phrase, here is a trustworthy saying. It's almost like the words of Jesus when he said, verily, verily. In other words, take note, take note. <laughs> Special attention, something good coming now, listen. <clears throat> and Paul on several occasions uses this. He uses it in, in chapter 3 of, of 1 Timothy about elders. That uh, here is a trustworthy saying, if a man sets his heart on being an elder... He desires a noble task. Oh, well. Ch chapter 4, he uses the same phrase again in verses 8 and 9. And in some ways, in 1 Timothy, the rest of them are quite practical. For physical training is of some value, but godliness has great value for all things, holding promise for, for, for both the present life and the life to come. This is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. But it's, when we go over into 2 Timothy and Titus, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 11, that uh, Christ Jesus coming into the world to save sinners again is amplified and explained. 2 Timothy 2, verse 11. Here is a trustworthy saying. If we die with him, we will also live with him. If we endure we will also reign with him. If we disown him, he will also disown us. If we are faithless, he will remain faithful, for he cannot deny himself. And then over into Titus, and then his next letter, these letters, three letters, are very much in a family, following the same kind of themes, and to the same period in Paul's life. Verse 4 of chapter 3, But when the kindness and love of God our Saviour appeared. That's as it was in 1 Timothy 1. He saved us not because of our righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Saviour, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy same. And the Apostle is 
is drawing attention to something here which we need to get well established if we're going to grow. How bad I am and how good he is. How merciful the Lord is. How his kindness has been stretched out to me. And uh, going back to this whole question of guilt. Without wanting that if there's something in my... Say that I had robbed a bank once. I didn't. But say that I did. Now, the seriousness with which I might just advise you not to do the same must always be with me. And sometimes, you know, the Lord picks us out of a pit so that we can be a signpost to everybody else not to fall into that pit. The Lord can even use our tragedies so that we can be the voice of experience saying, don't go down there, it will do you no good. If the Lord can use things like that. But equally, Paul is not burdened down with the sense of regret, even though he'd been responsible for so much suffering in the church. You, you don't get the flavour here that it's actually still troubling him. That's because he's been forgiven. And the Lord wants us to know personal forgiveness. He wants to take all the sting out of our guilt. I know a lot of Christians who struggle with it. And it's certainly been my experience that it's something at times that I need to come to the Lord for, that He might give me assurance of forgiveness, that I might know deep in my knower that pardon is mine. I can know. I don't always need to be living under a sense of guilt. Jesus can cleanse my heart, cleanse my record, and make me free <coughs> consequences and power. Is that right? That's what he's saying here. That's the beauty of the gospel. And it may be that if you still struggle with guilt over things where you said, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, Lord, maybe the actual simplicity and breadth of the gospel you haven't quite grasped yet. Not in its fullness. So I might say that uh, in terms of my forgiveness, God knows it. The record is clean in heaven, but the message hasn't quite filtered through to me. And I do believe that the message of forgiveness that God has for me, He wants to filter through to me. Whatever it is, whether it was last week, last month, last year, or 20 years ago, if I confess my sin, He's faithful and just and will forgive me my sin and cleanse me from all unrighteousness. And the record in heaven is wiped clean. The slate is clean. I have righteousness given me like a robe. But I believe he also wants to assure me. Give me a knowledge of forgiveness. So I can sing the song. I get to it. Thank you, Lord. Every time I realize I'm forgiven. It's not so much being told I am as knowing I am. Experiencing that sense of release which forgiveness is. That's the second thing that he goes on to say, and then he takes off on this, the king imperishable. That's what the Greek word means. Uh, never weary, never tired, never decaying, never weakening, an inexhaustible reservoir of goodness. That's your God. But having reached that crescendo, and I won't try and reach it again, I'm sure that the text itself bears eloquent testimony to the fact that Paul has emphasised his own sinfulness, but then it's cast the gospel in fairer light. 
hasn't it? The, the understanding his need is actually shown in brighter colours. What a marvellous thing, the gospel of Jesus' death and resurrection and of God's love to me. To understand the second one, he really had to come to understand his need deeply, didn't he? Which is done. But then, a few salty words to Timothy by way of closing. He's really talking about the way forward. Verse 18, just these three verses in Tim's personal plan. I tried to get personal equity plans. I tried to work it around that to say this, but I PPPs were about the nearest I could get to. Personal prosperity plan or something. But whatever it was, Timothy had a word over his life which said that God had a destiny, had a purpose, had a plan for him, and that he ought to stick with it and keep on it. Now, you may have had prophecies over your life, you may not, it doesn't change it, God has a plan for your life. And if I'm going to grow, I must grow in the will of God. That plan for me, sometimes it's very special, there are seasons which are mountaintops, the rest of the time it's simply a, a path that Jesus has ordained that I should walk in. And that's the will of God. And Timothy had that plan. Timothy, my son, I give you this instruction in keeping with the prophecies once made about you, so that by following them, you may fight the good fight. That he, he's issuing this charge. He's saying to Timothy, look, even though you're a timid guy and you don't want to start telling these horrible blasphemers off, do your job. Rise up, be strong. Don't let anybody despise your youth. That even though they don't listen to you and they don't like being told that they're wrong, get on with it, Timothy. That's the sort of thing that Paul is saying here. It's quite direct, isn't it? How bad to mention poor old Hymenaeus and Alexander by name. Or would you like to be Hymenaeus? To think that 1950 years later, still a people are still talking about him. That's not very nice, is it? Don't you dare do that to me, Pastor. <laughs> There'll be trouble. Well, yeah, it's a bit harsh. I, I, I can only think that the verse 20, among them are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme. The, the, the steps for discipline in 1 Corinthians 5.5 5 suggests that Paul, that maybe these two had already been disciplined within the church. It was already public knowledge, which is why that Paul is free to name them as a warning to others who are in danger of shipwrecking their faith. What a visual picture that is as he begins to talk about it, to, and calls Timothy to fight the good fight. Have you ever felt like giving up? Has anybody ever said to you, Tch, we've been on the road, isn't it? Hmm? Have you ever heard that? What? It's such a struggle. It is. Let's get it absolutely clear. It's easier to run with the tide than it is to go against it. You're right. It's, there is a war on, and there seem at the moment, from where I stand, to be a lot more of them than there are of us. And sometimes I seem to be fighting them all on my own, and I'm, I hear voices in my mind say, what's the point? If you can't beat them, join them. There's a simple answer to that, and it's this. It's a good fight. Christian, it's a good fight. You're on the right side, and you're going to be a winner. Now, of course there are times 
when it really does seem irksome and tiring, this being a Christian job. And there are occasions when you think, well, yeah, oh God, I'm tired. I, I'm just going to have a rest. People have said that to me. I'm going to have three months of church. I need a break. The chap that said that was out for nearly two years. Can I encourage you and say it is a good life. So fight it. Be a soldier. The Paul is almost giving a commission here to a high-ranking officer and saying, Colonel Timothy, stop that square you told his wife. You're raising here, I can't have a right. But it's that sort of thing he's saying. It's a good fight. And he goes on to say that holding on to faith and a good conscience. Then he mixes his metaphors a bit and says, Some have rejected these and so shipwrecked their faith. You're in the Marines, right? See and learn. You've got to be ready. Don't throw away your compass. Don't throw away your map. There's a war. And it's a good fight. Christian, what you're doing, it's a good fight. And you might think, oh, well, look, you're in my school and I get ridiculed and I, I feel different and if you work where I worked and, oh, what's the point? And anyway, I gave up being, being visible as a Christian years ago. It's been easier. Yeah, it will be. But you're not fighting the good fight. Can I encourage you? Very hard. Fight the good fight in faith. Take hold to faith and a good conscience. Heretics get, un get unstuck. And uh, I wonder, uh, just reflecting on this, whether Hymenaeus and Alexander needed to feel how cold the water was. <laughs> Notice that he says that they've been delivered over to Satan, that they may not, they'd be taught not to blaspheme. They weren't just being rejected, they were being disciplined. That these are people who just thought they would go their own way. Well, all right, well, you go, and you find out what it's like, and you'll realize how horrible it is, and then you can come back and we'll love you and accept you, and you'll be on the right lines then. But I'm sure there's something of that in Paul's heart. Good sailor, good soldier, fight on tonight. So that's really what I had for this morning. Let me recap. We will grow out of reality. We will grow if we are true to ourselves. We will grow if we recognize how basically vulnerable and sinful we are. How much we need the grace of God. How undeserving we are of that grace and yet how superabundant it is toward us. And that God has a place, a, a direction mapped out for us. We have a calling and a charge and a fight. And a captain, hallelujah, and a glorious gospel. The wonder of the gospel. Do you know, it would do us all good to have once a month the gospel day and to take time to reflect on the sheer magnitude of what it's all about. That's why we have communion, so that we don't forget. So that we can remember the, the, the grace of God. This is a faithful saying. And worthy of full acceptance. 
that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And the grace of God reached a man who tried to remove the heads of Christians, saved him. And within days of him becoming a Christian and ending up on his knees blinded, he had his sight back, he was filled with his spirit and told he was going to be a special messenger to tell the Gentiles of the gospel. <laughs> That's the Lord. The grace of God. Just bow your head. Lord, I pray for each one of us this morning that they journey truth will settle and that rising up from within us increasingly will come the kind of exuberation that burst forth from Paul when he said, No, to the And that, Lord, we may not only be just uh, giving mental assent to truth, but that that truth will grip us. That in terms of personal forgiveness, we may not just be giving, saying, oh yes, okay, so so. But that we might know so. Personally, deeply, savingly, wonderfully. And that, Lord, each of us might see the plan that you've got set out for us and walk in Jesus' name. Amen.